Take your Bible, your copy of the words of God, ancient words to us, and make your way to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we will finish today in this powerful chapter, right here in the heart of Matthew's gospel record to us. We are right in the middle of what Matthew has recorded, and uh, I trust that you're being affected as I am. I heard good reports from our grace group times. We were profited greatly through the fellowship at Southside, and I trust you were as well, whether in Central or Northfield, enjoying the opportunity to think about how these words affect our walk in this world. You'll remember by way of review from last week that in this section, we are focused on the value system of Christ. There are distinct values that our Lord has and that are revealed to us here in Matthew chapter 16, which mark him and mark his kingdom and his ministry. The dilemma or the point of confrontation comes as we recognize that we also operate from a value system. There are priorities in our lives which generate patterns of behavior. Those priorities are informed by truth, by presuppositions. So presuppositions inform our priorities and our priorities inform our practice. The dilemma comes as we profess to be followers of Christ. As we profess to be ones who come after the Lord Jesus. And yet we find that our value system may fall in a totally separate category than that of our Lord Jesus. So we saw first that Jesus values his identity. An identity granted to us through the revelation from heaven. Peter stood as the first to confess the great confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus values his church. As we walked through this paragraph, concluding in verse number 20, we saw the value of Jesus on building his people gathered together, the church. He values his gospel or the cross. As we examined verses 21 through 23, we saw Peter opposing the cross, opposing the suffering and the death of Jesus, whom he had just boldly declared through the revelation given from heaven, was the Messiah and was the Son of the living God. And Jesus harshly rebukes Peter, calling him Satan, asking him to get out of the way. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Jesus values the gospel. And we just started and will conclude today the fourth value of Jesus Christ in chapter number 16, verses 24 through 48 or 28. We find that Jesus values his lordship. So he values his identity. He values his church. He values his gospel and he values his lordship. These mark the the pillars of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as those who are his followers, we do well to consider how our value system mirrors that of our Lord Jesus. How concerned are we with the things that are most concerning to Christ? The big idea in this study, if you, if you weren't here or if you need review, as, as I often do, is this simple thought. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ 
to be recognized as followers of Christ. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ to be recognized as the followers of Christ. In other words, the world is to be able to distinguish us. Now, they may not be able to distinguish what makes us different, but the difference is inherent in being followers of Christ. And that difference is derived from our value system, those things that mean most. Those truths that establish priorities and patterns of practice in our lives. Now, with that question pressing in on us, we took time to analyze our value system last week in comparison to that of our Lord Jesus. I probably don't say it enough because I assume that you know it, that in every moment of study or every gathering for study on the Lord's Day, there are high points and low points of our study together. Um, I'm not an apostle. I'm not here under inspiration. What goes on in the pulpit here is proclamation empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, but is most certainly mixed with my humanity. That has become real this week as I heard again and again and again. I have no clue what is going on with the keys of the kingdom. Absolutely no idea what's going on. Um, some of you were subtle in asking the question. I had some further questions about the keys. So that's kind of you. Thank you for doing that. Further questions as if, you know, there's just more that you just wanted to examine. Some of you were not nearly as uh, as as cloaking in the question, it was just, I have no idea what's going on. What, what in the world is happening with the keys of the kingdom? So before we jump into the final value system, which is the Lordship of Christ, let's go back and let's make sure we have a grasp. Let's make sure I try to give you a grasp of what is happening in verse number 19 of chapter 16. Jesus values his church. He tells Peter that because of the, the marked confession Peter stands as the, the rock upon which the church will be built. We examined that. We studied through that. We talked about why that is not a papal inauguration and why it has no succession. And then we came to verse number 19. And maybe with tired minds and with tired hands and with a tired mouth and mind, we got to verse number 19 and quite obviously did not receive clear um, understanding of what was going on in this verse. Jesus follows up his promise to build the church and his promise that death itself will not defeat the church. It will not win. The gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not defeat the church. He follows that up with this statement to Peter. I will give you the keys of, your king, of the kingdom of heaven and whatever on earth Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I tried to explain and woefully failed in explaining the importance of the verbs in this verse. The verbs in this verse are critical to our understanding of what's happening. And your ESV has a note probably connected to the verbs in the second half of each of the statements that Jesus makes in verse 19. He says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed 
the shall be bound and the shall be loosed are verbs that give us a clear window into what's going on in verse number 19. The note in my ESV translation says, shall have been loosed. In other words, what is taking place here is Jesus is saying, you will receive Peter, you and all who follow after you as those who make the confession and those who embrace the gospel, you will receive keys to the kingdom of heaven that will open and close things that have been opened and closed in heaven. So the keys of the kingdom will be given. That's a future concept because Jesus is still present. When he ascends into heaven, Pentecost takes place. The church is inaugurated. The keys of the kingdom are held by Peter and all those who are a part of the church. And the keys to the kingdom open and close the kingdom as it has been opened and closed in heaven. You say, now what is going on with opening and closing? And who in this church has the keys? Um, We want to meet the key person who gets to open and close. Well, you do if you're in Christ. Simply because the gospel message that Peter has relayed, the message from heaven has sealed the kingdom to some and it has opened the kingdom to others. And as Christ leaves the scene and the church takes center spotlight as the body of Christ on earth, the church bears the keys. That is the gospel that will open and close the kingdom. So in the proclamation of the gospel and in the living of the gospel within the church, the church closes the kingdom to those who will not believe and opens the kingdom to those who are given eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. You say, where else can we find um, this kind of language? Well, not far away. We looked briefly, but let's do it again. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we find the exact same language, and we find one illustration of that binding and loosing, of that opening and closing that goes on with these keys. Verse number 15, if your brother sins against you, We're going to get to this. We're going to study this in in detail. But go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is removing gossip as a means of any kind of profit for the church. If there's sin or error in another, go to that person. If he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, take people who are are aware of the situation and go with those people and confront the sin. If he refuses to listen to them, bring it to the church. That is the family, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is the outline for what is commonly called church discipline or church restoration. That is someone who professes to be a follower of Christ, living in sin and and, in an unrepentant rebellion against Christ. Now notice what verse 18 says. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Do you understand the connection there? Because in church discipline, brothers and sisters, listen, when when we get to the final stage in church discipline, and I pray that it will be a long time before you have to experience this. 
But if we experience discipline within the church and we have to publicly acknowledge one who has been counted as our brother or sister in Christ, then we must say we now relate to this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. We are saying from this point forward, we relate to them as an unbeliever. Now, that is a fearful thing to do. Right? That's why Jesus says that promise in verse number 18. You have been given the keys, and therefore, verse number 18 says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, when you make this distinction based upon the gospel and the implications of the gospel, that distinction will come with the authority of heaven behind it. And that's what's happening when in chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, you'll have the keys. You will have the authority granted from heaven to close the kingdom and to open the kingdom through the gospel. So Jesus values his church. He values it in so much that he promises that he will build it. He promises that he will protect it. And he promises that he will grant it authority to operate on earth in his absence. Okay, so I hope that clarifies and and now if you need to come, you can just, I don't know, just say it as meanly as possible. We are totally confused and uh, you have failed us once again. Uh, that's a healthy reminder of my insufficiency. Okay, verse number 19. I hope that helps us understand and appreciate even more the value system of Christ with his church. Locally assembled church. That is the people of God gathered. Ultimately, we will gather as his Universal church at his return. Now, with that concluded, I trust we can move forward then to understand and appreciate the value of Christ for his lordship. Jesus values his church. He values his gospel and he values his own lordship. Picking up in verse number 24, we find Jesus making this declaration. Mark chapter 8 tells us that the crowds have been called. Jesus calls more people around and he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Here then is the, the declaration of lordship from the Lord himself. Jesus makes crystal clear his high value assessment of his own lordship in the life of those who identify with him and his kingdom there is no neutral ground you are either following under the lordship of christ or you are standing opposed to christ all who would make verbal assent or mental assent to the salvific messiah work of christ without submitting their lives to christ are not his friends they are his enemies and we've seen this repeatedly through our study of Matthew. There is no gray area when it comes to Christ. We are with him or we are against him. And to be with him is to live under his lordship. And Jesus paints that lordship picture with dramatic words. He says first that the element of lordship will be recognized in self-denial. Secondly, it will be seen in self-crucifixion. Taking up the cross this is a picture from the Roman crucifixion system where the, the, the prisoner who was to suffer execution carried the upper beam of his cross. The stakes to which that upper beam would be connected were left in the ground. They would have to carry that beam 
their own instrument of death to the place where they were to be crucified. We all are familiar with Simon who was tapped by the Roman soldiers to help Jesus carry his cross. Jesus, so badly beaten and abused, could not even bear the weight of that beam. And he uses that picture here to talk about discipleship. What is it that, that, that marks out those who live under the Lordship? They live apart from their own desires. They deny themselves and they die. They are crucified. This is violent. And understand, the, the people who heard this first had no context for the cross like we do. They did not wear the cross around their neck. They didn't have it on earrings. They didn't have it plastered on little stickers on the back of their car. They, they, they didn't think this way. Jesus said, you're going to follow me. It's going to mean the end of you and the death of you. This is radical language. Little did they know they would watch him take up his own cross. Which would seal his right to their lordship. This is his high value for his own Lordship in the lives of his followers. And then finally, there is a following after. There is a step behind step of those who are disciples of Christ. John MacArthur makes these helpful comments on this section. Listen to this, this, these helpful words from John. This passage sets forth the heart of Christian discipleship and it strikes a death blow to the self-centered false gospels that are so popular. Where? Somewhere else? No, in contemporary Christianity. There are false gospels inside of Christianity. It leaves no room for the gospel of getting in, which God is considered a type of utilitarian genie who jumps to provide the believer's every whim. It closes the door to the gospel of the health and wealth, which asserts that if a believer is not healthy and prosperous, he has simply not exercised his divine rights or else does not have enough faith to claim his own blessings. It undermines the gospel of self-esteem, self-love, and high self-image, which appeals to man's natural narcissism and prostitutes the spirit of humble brokenness and repentance that marks the gospel of the cross. Said like only John can say it, I can almost hear him saying that. Helpful words, because this declaration from Jesus, this this bold assertion that there is a value in in the priority and the practice of Christ for his own lordship and his right to that lordship. This statement smashes false gospels that would claim that there is some other way to heaven's blessings than self-denial, cross-bearing crucifixion, walking, following after Christ. Jesus is inherently Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we find these startling words. Usually read by us as God's people, we, we can tend to miss the implication of what is said in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Jesus is recognized as the ultimate humility in suffering, And in his incarnation. But in verse number nine, therefore, this is the result. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't miss the implication there. The inherent lordship of Jesus will be recognized by every creature. Every single human being that has ever stepped foot on the planet will bow the knee and will confess that Jesus is Lord. Either now as a direct recipient of the grace of heaven or in judgment before his throne, receiving the just punishment for their sin. Jesus Christ is Lord and he values that lordship. Now we got that far. At least I think we did. We got that far last Lord's Day as we studied this section. And what we didn't jump into is what I hope we can give the rest of our attention to this morning. Jesus goes from that assertion, from that declaration, to three logical reasons why that discipleship, why that lordship of Christ and discipleship in his followers makes sense. Why is it that this kind of lordship should be our value and is his value. Notice the flawless, seamless logic of Jesus as he gives us three verses with three fours to start them. And those fours could be becauses. I don't know if there is a plural for because. So becauses will be what we call it. It's a resulting application. This is reasoning behind that statement. Let's read them together. Verse 25, 26, and 27. For, or because, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And then Jesus concludes these statements, these words with verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's let's give ourselves to Jesus' logic here as he explains why these individuals should value his lordship as he does. He gives us three very simple statements, yet they are profound in their implications. Notice first in verse 25, all saving in this life will be loss in eternity. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Jesus here presents that great paradox of the New Testament. Those who would preserve or work to preserve their existence here, their their life here. The word here that's used for life and for soul in the next verse is really the same concept. And the idea is the immaterial part of the person. So it is not a call for mass suicide. This is not for us to drink Kool-Aid together and to say we've lost our lives here, but we've gained our lives in eternity. Any more than it is Christ's call for all of his followers to literally be crucified on a literal wooden cross. But what Jesus presents here is the individual who 
works to preserve identity here will lose that identity in eternity. Jesus uses financial lingo. I hope you saw it there in verses 25 and 26. First, those who save life lose life. And in verse number 26, we find profit, gains, and loss. In verse 25, we are struck with the reality that all the efforts to preserve this existence and a heritage in this existence will be for naught. But in contrast, verse 25 goes on to say, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So those who give up their existence for the only worthy cause, that is the sake of Christ. This is a clear declaration in logic of his lordship. Those who will give up here and now and will give up Adam Bailey and all of his glory and all of his exaltation and sacrifice that and set that aside for the sake of Christ and his agenda and his purposes and his glory and his exaltation, they will receive the ultimate blessing. This has been with us since Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize spiritual bankruptcy, because those are the ones who inherit the kingdom. So Jesus presents this first line of reasoning. You save in this life, you lose for eternity. You lose in this life for the sake of Christ and his purposes and his values and his agenda. You gain in eternity. You find true life. The end of verse number 25. So there is a perceived value in you and your culture and the worldview around you that pumps into you from every media venue says that life is all about you and that you should live for you and you should make the most of every day for you. And it's all about you. I don't know if you listen critically. I don't know if you're an expository listener to your television or your radio But try it, because it's preaching, preaching clear sermons that stand directly opposed to the Lordship of Christ. Those who follow Christ set aside their own Lordship over themselves and exult in being his slaves, denying themselves, dying to themselves and following him rather than themselves. You save your life now. You lose it in eternity. Jesus builds on this concept with these rhetorical questions in verse number 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world in exchange for or forfeits his soul? The answer is nothing. And second rhetorical question, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That is, in his immaterial part, his eternal existence that will receive a resurrected body if he's in Christ. What is it worth? And these are rhetorical. The first is there is no gain. There's no profit. And the second is it's of infinite worth. What else could there be that we would value? There is no price tag that can be placed on our souls. There are a number of things clamoring for you to consider valuable enough that you give yourself to gain them. We were talking about this at lunch this week, and it made me laugh as I was remembering the things that I have sacrificed to get 
because I perceive them to have value. And in fact, they have no value. First of all, in my garage or maybe in my baby daughter's bedroom, she's yet to find this out, there are boxes and boxes of baseball cards. I mean, boxes of them. You know how much those baseball cards are worth? They're not worth anything. I mean, they are not worth anything. In fact, even those of you who are hardcore baseball card collectors, I'm just, I'm just going to give it to you straight. It's, they're not worth anything, okay? I mean, I spent money. I worked yards. I, I did everything I could. Before I was in Christ, I stole them. I put my own freedom at risk to get baseball cards. They're worth nothing. We were reminded this week of the Beanie Baby craze. Some of you remember the Beanie Babies. Your local store was only going to get six of that next Beanie Baby. You needed to be in line early to get the Beanie Baby. You know how much Beanie Babies are worth? They're worth about as much pleasure as they give you looking in your rearview mirror and seeing them lined across the back of your car. Okay? They're not worth anything. This list could go on and on and on. There are all kinds of things in our culture that at some point in time we have valued and we've sacrificed for them and they have, they have nothing in return. I mean, they really give us nothing. But Jesus is presenting a much grander scale, a much bigger picture of, of value and profit and loss. And he asked it and he presents it with this question that he asked in verse number 26. If you gain everything you can see, but you lose what you cannot see, is it worth it? If you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul and your eternity, is it worth it? And the answer is no. And any normal person presented with that value system, whether or not they embrace the gospel or not, can see the clear logic that Jesus presents. I remember hearing an illustration from a fellow shepherd of, of his child trying to convince his child that they should try this banana split. But up to that point, the child had only had a vanilla ice cream cone. But it was the best thing they could ever imagine. The father kept saying, I'm telling you, it's way better than that ice cream cone. Way better. But that child, because of the value system with which they operated, and because of the experience and what they could see and what they knew experientially, held on to the value of that vanilla ice cream cone when there was freely offered a banana split. Same concept, same logic. Why, why would we offer up our souls, our eternal existence for the sake of this world? And Jesus says, there is no good reason. I am worthy of your allegiance because there is nothing on earth that compares to me in value. The cost of discipleship, brothers and sisters, is directly related to the worthiness of the one who's followed. And Jesus says that the world's agenda and the worldliness in which we live and the here and now and the accumulation of stuff is worthless in comparison to the value of Christ. As I studied this week and considered these words, I thought to myself how easy it is to agree with this right now. 
Like we, we do well to nod our heads right now, right? I mean, this, we say, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's easy to agree with this when you're sitting in a green chair in the little theater at Kingsburg High. It's tomorrow when this really gets difficult. Because it is tomorrow or it's the next day or it's this afternoon when the world in which we live crowds in on us and we start to perceive the worth of accumulating the world as somehow comparable in value to our walk with Christ. We see His Lordship diminished as we focus on what we can see. Our eyes of faith are weakened as we experience and live for what is here and what is now. You see the dilemma that's here? Jesus values his lordship. He presents these reasons for us to value it as well. Saving is losing and gaining is also losing because there's a forfeiture. You want the world? You can have it. It'll cost you eternity. Do you rest in possessions? Do you find your heart thinking, I'll know true joy? If I can just get that. I mean, let's let's just be real. When we have one thing that God has graciously provided for our use with gratitude to the glory of his name, like. A purple Hyundai. Namely. That I have. Do I find my heart saying if I didn't have the purple Hyundai, but I had that vehicle, then I would experience joy. Then I would know satisfaction. Then I would gain the world. But the forfeiture of my soul in pursuit of stuff and the world system in which I live has dramatic implications on my walk with Christ. And if we are to value what he values so that the world recognizes us as his followers, then we have to kill the world system and its priorities in our lives. We have to mortify sin which is what it is for us to worship anything other than our Lord, who is rightfully Lord. Jesus goes on then in verse number 26, and he asks one final question. What is the value of your soul? What would you be willing to pay? This reminds me of my literature background in college, spending time poring over Faustus, poring over the story of one who traded his soul And the lie of Satan has never changed as he presents over and over moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. As we follow Christ, the enemy presents us with things that he says, these are valuable enough for your soul. This is valuable enough for your soul. Trade it in for this. Trade it in for that. Give up the priority for this. It's worth it. He calls into question the lordship of Christ. He calls into question our allegiance by faith in the lordship of Christ, which is rightfully his. This is the enemy's plan. And Jesus presents the logic that defeats it. This is truth. These are verses that ought to be on our steering wheels or on the mirror where we get ready in the morning or wherever it is that we find ourselves tempted to live life for here. We must recognize The Lordship of Christ is backed by these truths. Eternal life means dying to myself and it is a worthy death. Eternal profit means sacrificing this world 
and my agenda and this world system's agenda, and it is a worthy sacrifice. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Reason number one, if you save, you lose. Reason number two, if you consider your profit, it's actually loss. And reason number three, there's a day when refunds are coming. I mean, this is what Jesus presents. It is an eschatological end time perspective. This whole section is eschatological. Looking at eternity from the eyes of life in this world. Jesus presents this third reason for us to embrace his lordship and to value it as he does. For he will come with his angels and they will dole out payment for what has been done. We get so accustomed to talking about judgment as if it's, it's almost not real. Why is it that Jesus is worthy of, of, of self-denial, of the end of myself, and of, of self-crucifixion, of taking up my cross daily and saying, I'm dead. The old Adam is dead. I'm alive in Christ, and Christ is everything, and His Lordship is, is the direction under which I must live. Well, these are valuable because He's coming again. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels and He will repay each person according to their value system. Those who have embraced the Lordship of Christ, who have lived by faith and not by sight, who have believed what they cannot see, who have responded to the words and promises of God, which they have not yet seen fulfilled. Those who have held on to things that are invisible, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, living in reality that cannot be touched or grasped, but holding fast to those invisible truths. It is those ones who will receive payment in reward when the Lord returns with His angels. And it is those who have forfeited their souls, who have saved their lives here, who have good names here, who are on magazine covers here, who are celebrities here, who are big fish in small ponds here. Who will receive payment from Christ through his angels of eternal death. Punishment in a literal place called hell. Jesus values his lordship and he presents logic that reinforces his value system. Saving is losing. Why would you do that? Why would you live for you? When it is all loss, you will never live for you. You only will experience eternal life and the fullness of blessing when you live for Him. Why would you trade in your soul to get the world when in trading in the world you get Him? Why would you live in fear of His return which will take place when you can look with anticipation to his rewarding return as his follower. This is the seamless logic of Christ. He presents it to us to help us understand and be confirmed in our valuing of his lordship. He values his church, so must we. 
if we're to be recognized as his followers. He values the gospel. So must we if we're to be recognized as his followers. He values his lordship. So must we if we're to be recognized as his followers. Jesus concludes this section in verse 28 by promising that some. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom or the power of his kingdom, as Mark says. I believe that the best understanding of verse 28 is in direct connection to 17.1. So we'll we'll leave it and we'll come back to it as the introduction to this next section. Truly, there were some standing in front of Jesus who would get to see what the glory of the kingdom looks like. Though temporary, though fleeting, they would see it even before they had tasted death. We'll come back to that next week. The values of Jesus are the identifying values of his people. So we must consider again, how well do those around me who see me, how well do they understand, how well can they know the Savior by watching my life as I live out in practice what I have as priority because of what I believe. Right. How well, how well does our culture here in the valley, whether you be from Sanger or Fresno, Fowler in the north or all the way down in Visalia, Hanford, Tulare, wherever you come from in our area, how well do those in your circumstance know Christ? Because the church, God's people gathered is to declare his gospel and then is to make it visible in the values in which they live. Does the church know that Christ values the church by watching you in your relationship to the church? Does the world around you know the value of Christ for his gospel, his suffering, bloody, substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, resurrected to new life and eternal life? Do they know that he values and treasures that message, though difficult it may be, by hearing you speak of that message, me, and how we talk about him? Do they know that Jesus values his lordship over his people? And he is rightful to demand our complete allegiance to him and the abandonment of self, death to my own agenda? Does the world get that by watching you live under him? Do they know that he values it because they see it lived out in you? Me? These are the questions we must consider. Where is it? Where is it in the Lordship of Christ that we would like to say this area is off limits? Lord, you are the Lord of my life. Except in this area. Is it your family? Don't touch my family. Is it your job? Don't touch my income unless you want to increase it. Where is it? Is it in my comfort? Don't touch my health. What, where, where are we? Because there are no doubt as those who live with the principle of sin still existent in our flesh. Those who have new life and have new priorities. We still battle with sin. And in battling with sin, if we're going to battle it, we've got to know where it is. Do we value his lordship? Where is it being confronted in your life? Rooted out with the gospel. And allow the value of Jesus to be seen 
in your life under Christ. Father, thank you for this study. These values are so convicting to us. A proper heaven granted revelation of the identity of Christ. The proclamation of the church and and the commitment of heaven to the church. And to the suffering servant. To the one who would go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised to new life. And heaven's value and affection for the lordship of that suffering servant over those who would follow him. Father, we desperately need grace to appropriate, to apply these values in our lives. You have made us new in Christ. Our hearts resonate with these values. We sit here and long for these to be seen in our lives. And we know, we know tomorrow's coming. We know this afternoon that there will be influences right in our own homes. There will be influences in our own flesh that will cry out and declare war against these values. Oh, how we need the gospel to apply in every part of our lives. Teach us to preach the gospel to ourselves that we might rightly value Christ and therefore in valuing Christ May we be recognized as those who share His value system, His priorities, which lead in our practice, in our patterns of living. You have promised to make us look like Christ. To shape and mold us, to burn off dross, to root out sin, to convict us where there is sin, to work in our lives. We want to submit to that. We want to lay ourselves open before You, asking that this Word would be used by Your Spirit to go where nothing goes between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. May it divide and conquer in our lives so that we would be trophies of your grace, bright lights, salty salt for the cause of your kingdom and the glory of your name, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.